and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. Each week, Aaron and I will talk about an, a new topic from the world of ecology, evolution, and or natural history. The only caveat here being that whatever topic we pick, the other person doesn't know. It's always a surprise. In honor of the winter season, we just we have decided to talk about the Arctic. Right yeah. Aaron? Yeah. We originally met for this to come out before Christmas so that it could kind of sync up more with our celebration of the winter season, which would be Christmas, but it's fine. Sometimes in between planning, recording, and writing of scripts, time can pass. Yeah, it'll do that from time to time. Anyway, but, should we jump right into it? Let's go. What you got for me? I So full disclosure, I plan this more around Christmas, so... This will be coming out in January, so think of this more as a continuation of the Christmas season. The holiday spirit just never ends. It really doesn't. Just like just like Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge at the end of A Christmas Carol, you want to keep the spirit of Christmas within you and share it throughout the year. You don't want that shit just to come and go between Black Friday and Christmas Day. Like, you want to keep it throughout the year. So, with that in mind, I have chosen to talk about reindeer. Okay, this is good. I almost picked reindeer. (laughs) I I did a last minute substitution. This is very good. (laughs) Good thing you didn't. Yeah. So then you might already know something about what I'm going to talk about, right? No, I really didn't get that far into it. Oh, okay. Well, cheers, and I hope you enjoy my topic. Anyway, what most people know about reindeer, of course, is that they pull Santa's sleigh and... One of them has a mutation that should instantly get him eaten by a wolf. Um, but what people might not know is that there are a lot of other really cool adaptations that reindeer have that allow them to survive in the Arctic, which is a very inhospitable environment. Flight being the most important. So, Aaron, in real life, what are some of the main challenges that you see to living in the Arctic? It's cold. Sure. Sure. Depending on the time of the year, it's dark. A little bit less important, but sure. A little bit less important. At the winter equinox, you get an hour of sunlight. Okay, sure, but if you're freezing to death, whether or not you can see really isn't that important. And then on the other end, in the summer, you get 23-hour days. You do. That's what I'm saying. It kind of balances out. So that is, I'm not saying that's unimportant. I'm saying it's less important. But cold, number one. Number Mm -hmm. two, food. Yep. Bingo. Bingo. Exactly. The other one I'd put in there is that it's really dry. Yes, because isn't it the Arctic, or maybe it's Antarctica, is technically a desert with the amount of precipitation they get? I, I would lump the Arctic in there, too. The other part about this that's really important is that because it's so cold, the air is not humid at all. Like, cold air cannot carry water vapor. It just, that's just how physics work. So, any air you breathe in is going to be really dry. So, you're going to waste a lot of water just breathing, right? Yeah, yeah. That's another obstacle they have to overcome. I just want to keep those three really challenging obstacles in mind when I'm talking about these adaptations because they'll all make sense in that context. Um, but right off the bat, reindeer just have some pretty obvious adaptations that 
they're not, un- I mean, they're still remarkable, but they're the things you'd expect, right? So it's really cold. So they have really thick fur coats to help preserve body heat. And, you know, also in this regard, their size helps them out a lot. So large size means that they have a much lower surface area to mass ratio. So there's a lot less surface area where heat can escape from their body. Um, so this is the same concept that if you've taken a biology class, it's the same reason that bacteria are really small. Bacteria want to be able to interact, or microorganisms anyway, they want to be able to interact with their environment as much as possible. So they're really small, so that that ratio is skewed in the other direction, right? And not only that, they often have structures to increase surface area, like essentially little hairs and flaps on them. Exactly, exactly. So reindeer are kind of doing the opposite. They're just kind trying to kind of be a big fat blob with as little contact with this really cold environment as they possibly can manage. In terms of the less obvious adaptations that I'm going to talk about, I'm just going to start from the ground up. Because uh, the first thing I'm going to talk about is their hooves, and their hooves are definitely worth talking about. So, the thing about the tundra where reindeer live is that it's a very dynamic environment between seasons. It changes very dramatically. So in the summer, the tundra is very swampy and muddy. So in the summertime, the reindeer's feet will have large foot pads that help them grip the soft, slippery ground. Right? Makes sense. You don't want to be sliding all over the place when you're running from wolves. In the winter, however, the ground tends to freeze up, you know, as it does when it's below freezing. So the reindeer's feet adjust accordingly. The feet pads shrink, and this reveals a sharp pointed hoof. So it helps their feet grip the ice that covers the tundra during the wintertime. Um, It also helps them dig into the snow and ice to uncover food that they can eat. So their feet are just changing between seasons. Your feet don't do anything approaching that. I've let my toenails get pretty gnarly. Right, but does that help you survive the winter? No, 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 I can't even think something witty about that. All I can say is that if my hands get too cold, I can use them to pick something up, keep them in my mittens. All I can think about is that if a reindeer had a sugar daddy with a foot fetish, they'd only be able to make money for about six months out of the year. That's the takeaway? (laughs) That's one takeaway. (laughs) It's not the only takeaway, but it's one of them. The main takeaway, though, that you should be getting is that that's a really cool adaptation. And the second takeaway is that's actually (laughs) a really good way for supplemental income. (laughs) (laughs) Half the year you can make money from the foot from the foot pad fetishes. The other half the year you can make money from the hoof fetishes. You can really cover all your bases there. Anyway, so moving on from the hooves. We're going to go all the way up to the mouth. So there's very little food in the tundra, as you can imagine, and as we've already talked about. Basically, all that's there are very small, hardy plants and lichens. So reindeer take advantage of these limited food sources by being one of the few animals which actually possess enzymes that help them break down lichens. I didn't know lichens were inedible to most animals. Most are just because they're they're so tough. Yeah, and lichens also aren't plants. That too. So they don't possess similar structures to other 
plants that herbivores would normally utilize for food. And even then, so a heads up. So most herbivores will have like some sort of symbiotic gut fauna, like a microbe in their digestive tract that actually does the digesting for them. Yep. They really can't do it on their own. Exactly. And that's why we can't digest celery. It just goes right through us for the most part. There's like you get three calories out of a stalk. Yeah, you really do. So that basically like reindeer have adapted to 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 take advantage of a totally different food source than most other herbivores, which, again, is a requirement because otherwise they would starve to death when nothing else is available to eat. So going up from the mouth, we go to the nostrils. And this is where things really start to get crazy. Reindeer nostrils are very, very unique because they have evolved to have an extremely high surface area inside, which allows for the air they inhale to be warmed before it reaches the lungs. So inside their nostrils, they have these weird, crazy spiral shapes that makes them kind of look like seashells if you see a cross section of it. And their nostrils are filled with all kinds of blood vessels. Like the density is just crazy. That way the blood from their body can warm the air that's going through the nostrils. Right. And this is really important because if you have really cold air going all the way through your lungs and through your respiratory system, by the time it reaches your lungs, it's taking moisture and heat from basically your entire body as it's going from your nostrils to your lungs. So you want to warm the air when it's, you know, coming into your body as quickly as you possibly can. The other thing that does is it also means that air can contain more moisture and you're not losing water. So reindeer do this so well that research has shown that air as cold as minus 40 Celsius, not Fahrenheit, Celsius, is as warm as 38 degrees Celsius by the time it reaches their lungs. For the Americans out there, this is the equivalent of taking you know, something that is like zero degrees Fahrenheit and bringing it up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. In other words, normal human body temperature in the space from their nostrils to their lungs. The glowing nose thing, that's too unrealistic. We can't have that. But the air conditioning nose, that's totally viable. Yes, exactly. And this is what I'm saying, is that people know about the glowing noses, but the way that they process winter air in the Arctic is arguably more incredible because they're able to change the like the temperature of that air by magnitudes maybe they get bright red nasal polyps (laughs) although i will say like because of these adaptations and because reindeer have a lot of blood vessels around their nose to maintain their body temperature so well a lot of reindeer actually do have red noses. Oh, okay. So it does come full circle. So it's not entirely off base. But why would you talk about the red nose when their nostrils have like this crazy spiral seashell thing going on? You know what I mean? You know what I bet Santa actually does is, you know, he's wearing these mittens, but his hands, they're still getting cold. Maybe in between runs, he's like, oh, Rudolph, get over here and goes, just kind of puts one thumb in each nostril to heat him up for a little bit. Yep. Rudolph. He uses them as a cigarette lighter. <laughs> like the ones you find in cars. <laughs> yeah. 
Rudolph, get over here. Santa needs a smoke. It's time for my 20. (laughs) Anyway, the other part that I touched on is that the nostrils are also designed to prevent water loss, right? If you lose water, and water loss in addition to just being really important for all organisms is also really important for reindeer, not just because the tundra is really dry, but also because if you lose a lot of water, how are you going to get more water? Like, Aaron, this is not rhetorical. How do you get more water in a snowy environment? Uh, the obvious answer is to eat snow, but I know yeah, you're not supposed you to do that. There you go. You'd have to eat snow. The issue with eating snow is that it's really cold. And you're trying to stay warm. So you don't want to lose water for that reason, as well as just, you know, not getting dehydrated. So to, you know, counter this effect, reindeer nostrils are also covered with a layer of mucus on them. So when they in, when they inhale, moisture is being removed from the skin inside their nostrils and from the mucus layer on its way to the lungs. So... That way the air is moist by the time it gets to the lungs, so it's not taking moisture from inside the body. Then, on the way out, the dry mucus on the inside of their nostrils can then take moisture from the air they're breathing out. So it's like this, it maintains this homeostasis within their respiratory system. So as air is coming in, um, the air coming in is moistened and heated, and then it goes into the lungs, and then when it's breathed out, it's dried and cooled. So that way when it comes back out, they're breathing out cool, dry air and taking in cool, dry air, and that way they lose as little heat and moisture to their environment as they can possibly manage. Which, again, very important for the Arctic. Absolutely, and they really are using the laws of thermodynamics to their advantage here. So... Moving on from the nostrils, we now come to their eyeballs. So, the really cool thing about reindeer and their eyeballs is that they can see in ultraviolet wavelengths. Yeah, that's isn't that pretty rare for mammals in general? It is. It is. And this is another reason why I say that reindeer are really, really cool and why we should focus more on, more on actual reindeer than on fictionalized magical creatures. Anyway, I digress. So the ultraviolet wavelengths thing is really cool and really useful for them as well, as it turns out, because snow reflects ultraviolet wavelengths almost completely. So that means that things that are not snow show up really, really well, especially the things that actually absorb ultraviolet wavelengths, right? One of those things, guess what? It's piss. I, that's not what I was going to guess. <laughs> I thought you were going to say plants. Nope. Piss absorbs ultraviolet wavelengths really, really well. And as it turns out... They just love it. They roll around whenever they get the chance. (laughs) Well, they'll do that from time to time, I guess. But anyway, when you pee on snow and you view it through an ultraviolet wavelength, the snow reflects all of the UV light the urine absorbs it. So the patch of piss on the snow looks like literally black on white through that wavelength. And this is really useful for reindeer, not only because it helps them see the piss that's 
you know, being strewn around by other reindeer and helps them, you know, stay together and find mates and things like that. It also show it also allows them to track predators because, you know, predators also have to piss. This is a good tracking system. It is exactly. And, you know, apparently in the tundra, piss is a great way to do that. What can I say? <laughs> so another useful part about this is that, you know, any gaps in the snow are going to be really obvious. If you can see UV light, which, you know, get that what you were originally thinking. Yeah, <laughs> you can see little plant bits. Exactly. So if there are any uncovered plants or lichens or things like that, they're really obvious to the reindeer and they can spot them right away. And so this whole adaptation within their eyeballs that's really rare among mammals allows them to be more acclimated and aware of their surroundings in a way that we as humans would not be. Just because reindeer can't fly doesn't mean they're not badass in their own right and don't possess a lot of really cool adaptations. They can spot piss a mile away, maybe two. (laughs) Yes, they can. You wouldn't want to bring a reindeer into a hotel room. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Oh, you're sitting there? I wouldn't do that. Yeah. You're going to put your head on that pillow? Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't know about that one. But yeah. Also, another side note. Um... Female reindeer are the only reindeer that keep their antlers in the winter. So based on pretty much every depiction that's in pop culture, the reindeer pulling Santa's sleigh are all female. Oh, so the males don't? The males lose their antlers in the winter. Oh, I just assumed uh, everyone lost it. Nope. It's only the males that do that. So reindeer are unique in that females do have antlers. For a lot of other deer and similar species, females don't have those same kind of structures on their head. Reindeer do, and the females keep them throughout the year, but the males lose them in the winter. So, if the reindeer pulling Santa's sleigh all have antlers in the wintertime, they're all female. Hmm. No. How about that? Anyway, and yeah, those are reindeer. And they're really badass winterized adaptations. Okay, so I have one thing to add. This was going to be my entire piece when I was reading it. I'm kind of glad I didn't. So reindeer will do something called, it's kind of nicknamed cyclones. When a predator, when there's predators about, they'll form a group and they'll run around in a circle. And it's kind of the same idea that like with a school of fish, if there's a ton of us, you know, the predator can't focus on just one. So when they do this, you know, they run in a circle, even domesticated reindeer will do this. It's kind of a trait that's just been kept. One time uh, there was a lightning storm and lightning struck a herd of reindeer doing this and it killed all of them. It killed over 300 reindeer in one hit. What? Yeah, it happened back in 2016. Someone stumbled upon it in like a nature reserve. It was in Norway and it's just tons of dead reindeer everywhere. All the scavengers had a field day with it. (laughs) It's a bonanza for the wolves. Yeah. And the reason I didn't do this because one, there's really not that much to talk about. And two, it happened like uh, it was just a bit below the Arctic Circle. So I'm like, well, on technicality, it did not occur in the Arctic. Oh, and reindeer are one of the few animals where you can easily find the domestic and wild version. Both alive. 
True. Most True. animals, you don't find both. Yep. Yep. Either humans have no interest in the wild species, or we have a ton of interest in a version of the wild species, and so we just kind of take over from there. But anyway, yeah, that's my piece. Those are reindeer. And thank you for contributing what was almost your time. Yeah, it would have been so short. And I would have had anything to add it. I would just be a little tack on at the end. <laughs> Which is exactly what it ended up. Yeah, being. So I'm exactly. Research that. Okay. So, all right. What do you got? So I actually went through many different topics and every single one either took place just outside the Arctic Circle. And like I said, I was a, was a stickler for the rules. Or they actually took place in Antarctica, and I was misremembering. <laughs> Antarctica is south. Penguins, only south. They're none up north. I'll give you a pass. It does have Arctic in the name. Yeah. It, it was something. It wasn't like I was talking about penguins. I was thinking of like a bug. Maybe another day. There are bugs in Antarctica? It, I think just one. That's what I was going to do. But oh, in okay. the Arctic, there's actually a bunch. Because there's actual plant life up there. That's true. That's true. All right. So what did you decide? I decided to settle with the Greenland shark. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Honestly, probably one of the most underrated Arctic animals. I have yet to see it in a Christmas special, but they are weird. <laughs> That's not, well, yeah, I guess that was a narwhal and elf. Never mind. Yep. Yeah, narwhal. Hell, penguins made a cameo in elf, and they're not even in the North Pole. No one said Christmas was ecologically accurate. There's a lot of interesting facts to these guys, but there's also a lot of misinformation, so I'll kind of sort through it all. all right. So, what is a Greenland shark? Well, Greenland shark can be described as a great white shark's blind elderly uncle. Not aware of what's going on, just drifting around like the Joe Biden of sharks. <laughs> it has a hunting tactic of sneaking up behind seals. It'll kind of give them a sniff and say, hey there, corn pop, you're a lying dog faced <laughs> pony soldier. I kid. I actually have a lot of respect for these animals. I would like to thank the researchers at the St. Lawrence Shark Observatory up in Canada. They had a lot of great information on their website. I'll be referencing several of their articles and a few of their research papers as well. Nice, nice. So, Greenland sharks, also known as Somniosis microcephalus, which roughly translates to sleepy small head, <laughs> are in the aptly named sleeper shark family. Most of these are known for their very slow metabolism, and a lot of them can be found in the deep sea, although the name sleeper can be a bit misleading. Okay. Greenland sharks are the largest of these guys. Typically, they reach about 8 to 14 feet in length, but some of the largest can get over 20 feet, upwards of 23. Wow. That actually okay. makes them longer than the great white shark. However, they're about half the girth, so they're not nearly as hefty. I really think they should remake Jaws with a Greenland shark and just have the shark be going at like half the speed. Half the speed? Yeah. Well, they're not even that good at, or they're not bad at hunting. I'll get to that. Yeah, but the entire movie could be shot in slow motion except all the shots that just contain the shark. Okay, so there's a key reason why they don't attack people, and I will get to that. All right, I'll wait for it. 
So appearance-wise, I mean, take a shark, give it kind of a mottled gray look, make the head a little small, greatly reduce the dorsal fin, and depending where you're at, they may have some weird dangly bits on their eyes. More on that later. That's a Greenland shark. Solid. The first thing that's special about these sharks is their tolerance of colder waters. While there are other sharks that will migrate north during certain times of the year, like, say, the salmon shark, Greenland sharks are one of the few species that will stay in the Arctic region year-round. Gotcha. The only other species is actually a close relative, and that's a smaller sleeper shark species. Got it. So Greenland sharks inhabit the Arctic Ocean and northeastern European waters. They're not just native to Greenland exclusively. You can actually find them in cold waters of Canada, Iceland, U.S., around Alaska, and other countries. And these guys do prefer colder waters. They often actively try to stay within a range of roughly 29 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. It seems like 60 is kind of the very upper range for them. That's only in certain parts of Canada, I believe. So they're they're not like the old elderly uncle then, because the old elderly uncle would move southward and Greenland sharks will stay near the Arctic. I guess. Well, maybe they're like the elderly father that yells at you when you touch the thermostat. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. You can put on a coat. You gotta save electricity. <laughs> you know how high the electrical bill was last month, Sonny? Saving a whole $23 a year with that move. So these guys can migrate a lot in the water column. Say in the summer months, they can go up to 22,000 meters, sorry, 2,200 meters down, 2,200 meters down, which is a lot. And in the winter, they can migrate. Not as much as 22,000 though. Yeah, not as much. My bad. And in the winter, they can migrate all the way up to the ice covered surface which would actually be colder than the deep ocean at this time of year, because the deep ocean never really changes. Right, right. That's true. And there's some rumors that because they can live in the deep ocean, they're found all throughout the globe. There is not really any evidence to support this, because most sleeper sharks look the same, unless you do like a DNA test. So you could look at another small species of sleeper shark, and you could say, oh, it's a baby Greenland shark. No, that's a full-grown Shark of another species. However, one did turn up in the Gulf of Mexico. Quite a way away from its normal range. So it's been confirmed that Greenland sharks can migrate from the Arctic. One. One case. But it has happened. It has happened, but it's not happening all the time. You'll see clickbaity news articles like, why is this Arctic shark invading our waters? No, it happened one time. And they even said that it might actually be a hybrid between a Greenland and another species. Okay, well, those are still clickbaity articles because waters that the Greenland shark inhabits in the deep sea are definitely not our waters. But it could still be invading the deep sea of, you know... The deep sea throughout the world, basically, you know? It could be, but we don't have evidence for it, so we can't claim that it's happening. Based off all of our data, they're really not. Well, they're at least invading the Gulf of Mexico, so... Once. The the uncle wanted to go on vacation. (laughs) He really had to go on a cruise. He He was trying to crash the party on the carnival boat. So, some people will mistakenly call the Greenland shark the slowest shark on Earth. And I kind of did that at least three times already. (laughs) 
But don't get me wrong, they can be slow. They definitely live up to the name Sleepy at times. They've been recorded just hovering at the bottom of the ocean, barely even moving. Other times they've been recorded at swimming at a speed of less than one mile an hour. I feel like they're not even moving. That's just planktonic. Yeah, they're just drifting around. However, they're still capable of making quick bursts of speed when they need to. No, that, that that's just a bunch of crabs just sitting there and blowing water in its face. <laughs> they see it coming close and they all kind of fan it away. But the website really stressed this, so I think I need to make the point also that that is just what they're adapted to do, you know? Like, they can make a quick burst of speed. They can outswim a person easily. They just they don't need to. Yeah. If you're cruising around the ocean looking for food, and by the way, in the deep ocean, there's not a lot of that, you wouldn't be sprinting nonstop everywhere. You just take your time. And they're the largest fish in the Arctic, so they really don't have much to worry about. That also makes a lot of sense. I mean, if I was driving around trying to find the only Burger King in North Dakota, you bet that I would be driving really slow (laughs) to try and save gas. Did I miss it? No. How about no? That was McDonald's. So, generally speaking, slower animals have lower metabolisms, and lower metabolism also means longer lifespan. Right. For example, some tortoises can live well over 100 years. Yeah, just ask any senior citizen. Just stay where you are. (laughs) Just just sit there. You'll be fine. You'll live through another world war. (laughs) Probably not a nuclear holocaust, though. Probably not that one. Maybe stay really still. So, and I'm sure you've heard this before. What's cool about the Greenland shark is that they are the longest living vertebrates on Earth. Yes, I have heard that. Vertebrates, which means they have a backbone. So, fish, sharks, amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals, those are all vertebrates. Right, because there are clams that live longer, right? Yeah, there's actually quite a bit. There's clams, there's some sponges and jellyfish that can outlive them. Trees. Oh, yeah, I guess trees certainly can. Yeah, so, but as far as vertebrates go, that's pretty good. It's not fully known how long they live. We can't count vertical growth bands on them because they don't have them, actually, but a lot of other sharks do. And they don't live long enough in captivity to measure growth. The longest ones live in an aquarium is only a month. Wait. So two questions. One, where are these growth bands that you're talking about? I don't know. Uh, I think the growth bands are actually found on the eye lens of sharks. Oh, okay. And they lack them. Does that have anything to do with the eye growths that you mentioned earlier? That's unrelated, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Second question, why don't they live very long in captivity? Uh, I don't know why that is. I mean... I'd say the first thing, A, is it's taking a lot of effort to get one out of the Arctic, and then you have to transport it to an aquarium. I imagine the stress that puts on them is astronomical. And it's the same reason that grape white sharks, they don't live long in captivity either. I think you just can't really set up a good environment for them if they live in the open ocean. Right. See, that's what I attributed it to more. With great white sharks is that like they they're used to roaming around and so they aren't able to build a large enough tank to really house them. It's, you know, it's kind of the same reason that, you know, orcas really shouldn't be kept in captivity either. Yeah, well, with Greenland sharks, we know they don't 
they do move. They don't move fast, but over a long period of time, they'll cover a long distance. But they talked a lot about how easy it is to stress these animals and kill them and how they can get shocked by temperatures and stuff like that. So that's what my guess is. And they're also not exactly easy to find. Okay. All right. That makes sense, I guess. That's my guess, but the article didn't go into it terribly much. Right. I'm just, I'm just curious because like usually the animals that do well in captivity are, you know, your, your slower, lower metabolism organisms. Right. Yeah. Because you don't need as big of a tank or if they have a high metabolism, they're tiny. Yeah, they don't need much space. So it's easier for them to adapt to a, a, a captive environment, right? To, probably unrelated to anything you had in mind to, had in mind to talk about, but... <laughs> no, was, I just had a little bullet point there, but still, very good point regardless. All right, so carry on. So based on a couple recaptures and measurements of tagged individuals in one study, they found that some sharks only grow about a third of an inch a year in length, which means if you have individuals that are over 20 feet long, based on this data, they'd be over 500 years old. But that's assuming a flat growth rate, right? There could be growth spurts. However, to back this up, in 2016, a study actually used radiocarbon dating of the sharks to determine their age. And for a point of reference, they measured the carbon-14 isotope strictly because after the testing of nuclear bombs in the 1950s, its concentration doubled in the atmosphere. And you can use it as a reference point from anything 1950s onward. That's wild. Yeah, that's cool. And based on this data, they found the sharks had an average life expectancy of 272 years. And the largest shark they tested would be about 393 years old with a 120-year margin of error. <laughs> okay, so your, your, your estimate really doesn't mean shit if your margin of error is that wide, right? There's right? Yeah. That's a pretty big margin of error. Even if we take the lowest version of that, that's still about 270. Like, and Aaron, that's pretty that's pretty long. Like, Aaron, if I told you you were going to go on a date with somebody and that they were 5'9", but my margin of error was two feet. <laughs> okay. Are they going out with a giant or a leprechaun? Right. Like, you would have some questions, yeah. right? There is so much we don't know about these sharks. They need to be researched more. Go to the St. Lawrence Shark Observatory and read their articles and give them some support. Absolutely. Because they're giving the headway on these guys. They do. They're doing some really cool research on some really awesome animals. And it's not just Greenland sharks. There are other sharks up there. Greenland's, I just think, happen to be one of the coolest. Gotcha. Although, let's kind of go back to how they were aging sharks previously by their length. Because I feel like that also would be a really inaccurate way to age sharks. That was a very old study. That was one of the first on them. I think that one was from the 60s. Okay, good. Because, like, imagine if you try to age humans that way. Like, what if you just caught a human between the ages of, like, 12 and 14 and said, like, oh, by the time he's 80, he'll be 8 foot, 12, eight foot 11 or something like that, you know? Like. Yeah, that's why the big caveat is if you assume there's no growth spurts. But maybe we could compare that to similar shark species and see if they have growth spurts. 
But again, that's why this was like one of the largest standing articles about their age. And there's misinformation to it. But even with the lowest estimate they found, they're still the longest lived vertebrates. Not even close. Yeah, even though we don't know the age range exactly, it's still safe to assume these are the longest living vertebrates alive today. Right. Now, although they have a low metabolism, that doesn't mean they're just snacking on algae all all day. These guys are generalist predators, although more recent studies show they're primarily scavengers. That makes sense, given where they live, right? So they have been found to consume fish like salmon, char, halibut, eels, wolfish, haddock, skates, and other sharks, invertebrates like crabs, snails, squid, sea urchins, sea stars, whelk, jellyfish, mammals like beluga, narwhal, seals, horse, reindeer, dog, and polar bears, and other goodies like seabirds and kelp. I think the kelp might have just been on accident. (laughs) He got confused. Man, when did this when did this salmon turn into sushi? Man, this salmon sucks. <laughs> so all this kind of backs up the idea that they're more so scavengers. With all the sheer variety, it sounds like they kind of eat whatever they come across. Yep, absolutely. I doubt they're hunting everything. The fact that they eat whale remains suggests it had to be a corpse they scavenged. Right, right. Either that or it was a really slow whale. It's a really slow well, but even they can't eat it whole. All they could do is take a bite out of it. It was actually just going backwards. <laughs> uh, same for the polar bear. And the article stated this. There is no chance the shark was able to eat a live adult unless it was sick or wounded. It probably found one that drowned in the water. Yeah, Probably. Probably. There's another myth going around that because of global warming, the Greenland sharks are going to start eating more polar bears. That was a kind of clickbaity article I saw. But that is also highly unlikely because even in the water, the polar bear is probably more deadly of the two. Probably, yeah. And like I said, there's not really any confirmed attacks on people. And the source I found for this just said... This is likely due to the fact that people don't tend to swim in the Arctic Ocean. Well, well, yeah. yeah. They, also don't, they also don't tend to, to swim at depths of, you know, like a mile deep. Yeah, that's the, that's the number one reason they don't eat people. Probably just doesn't come up very often. Yeah, exactly. There was one rumor of someone finding a leg in a Greenland shark's stomach in 1859. But even then, what are the odds this is someone that fell out of a boat? Or it was just a boat wreck, you know? Right. Or that it even happened in the first place. But at the same time, I really want to see that alternate ending of Titanic where Leo DiCaprio gets eaten by a Greenland shark. Oh, they'd have a ball game down there. They really would. And that would be so much, that would be such a better ending than Leo DiCaprio dying because he couldn't fit on a door. It just slowly comes up, grabs him, just pulls him away. And he's just like, are you kidding me? This is happening? (laughs) He has time to write an entire will during the process. (laughs) He really got all of his affairs in order. Got to totally exclude that one kid he hated. 
So there's some non-verified reports of Greenland sharks acting like crocodiles and ambushing caribou as they cross large bodies of water. What? Uh, while the source of this was reputable, it's likely that it just found a dead moose near the shallows. Or sorry, a dead caribou near the shallows. Right, because how... Like, they just don't move very fast. Like, they don't move fast enough to really lunge like that, right? They really don't. They are capable of short bursts of speed, but when they do hunt something, it's kind of just a stealthy approach, or they wait until they find an animal in a compromised position. Yeah, they don't seem like they're very threatening unless you're seriously impaired and or dead. So, at one point, these sharks were known as the corkscrew killers. Because they really liked wine yeah what (laughs) so at one point a large number of seal were being discovered with missing flesh marks along their body in a corkscrew like pattern so guess kind of if you put a seal through a pencil sharpener that's kind of what they looked like when they were turning up and this was happening on both sides of the atlantic ocean wait put the entire seal through a pencil sharpener a really crappy pencil sharpener like the one that really wasn't getting the job done and you're upset because you can't get that perfect crisp pencil but that's the only one you got and the teacher won't get a new one they got the stupid hand crank ones everyone's electric now oh okay i was just imagining you like putting an entire seal through a meat grinder i'm like dude you wouldn't have anything left to analyze after that no imagine if you just took a chunk of seal and kind of peeled it along the body like string cheese that's how they were turning up oh okay now originally people blamed this on a large population of greenland sharks killing all the seals this is bullshit for a number of reasons one of these the areas where the sharks are found or one of these the areas where the seals are being found the sharks hadn't really been documented in before and there's no real reason for the shark to only eat part of the animal They'll eat kind of anything, and they're probably not going to waste any of the food. Why would they just just take a strip out of it? They're going to eat the whole seal, most likely. And Greenland sharks are actually known to eat live seals, but these are usually young or sick seals, or they're ones that got trapped under the ice. And the Greenland sharks just like, oh, well, don't mind if I do. Yeah, yeah. Kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, unless you're seriously impaired. You're probably not. You're probably going to be fine. Yeah. You're not going to get threatened by a Greenland shark, at least not seriously. But when these sharks do eat seals and they do leave a bite mark, it's actually very distinct. They have rounded jaws, almost looks kind of circular, and that allows them to remove like cookie cutter chunks of large prey items. Really? Yeah. Almost like there's actually a shark called the cookie cutter shark, but it's a small pair six species i guess and they're kind of like that but much larger and much older much larger and older yes so but those were not the bite marks on the seals the actual culprit for the corkscrew killings was just seals being torn up in large oil drilling vessels they just got sucked through a propeller yeah that one was debunked pretty quickly so it was really just like it was really just propaganda by big oil to try and cover their ass. It's I don't know if it was proper. You know, maybe it was. Maybe the conspiracy goes that deep. I think most people think, hey, this is a weird shark. Yeah, let's demonize it. 
Hey, Aaron. It's killing polar bears, seals, left and right. Aaron, you were starting to discount my theory really early on there. I think you're part of the conspiracy. <laughs> I'm part of the cover-up. I'm in BP's pocket. Yeah, where, where'd your last paycheck come from, man? <laughs> I really want to know. Okay, so now that we know what the sharks eat, which is pretty much anything they come across whenever they see it, which isn't very often, the question is, what eats them? When they are only, when they are full grown, there's actually only one confirmed predator, and that is the sperm whale. Really? And that's not just the sperm whale. That is no, that is the sperm whale. It is a specific sperm whale, like an individual sperm whale. That is known as the sperm whale. No, he's like, actually known as Typhon. <laughs> the the ultimate sperm whale. I wouldn't say the ultimate sperm whale. The whale with the whale with the most sperm. <laughs> well, not anymore. Typhon's dead. That doesn't mean he doesn't have a lot of sperm. It's just also probably dead. Typhon got caught up in a fishing net. Oh no. Yeah, but the uh the shark observatory actually found two documented accounts of this sperm whale eating Greenland sharks. And wait, they after, wait documented like after it died i thought they found the shark when it was in a fishing net no this was the whale the whale died in a fishing net but prior to that they had seen that exact whale eating two greenland sharks oh okay i thought this whale like you know lazarus lazarus itself after it was caught in the fishing net and managed to eat more greenland sharks so yeah he got caught in a fishing net and died unfortunately when they examined his remains, however, they found his teeth were incredibly dull, like almost worn down to the nub. And sperm whales have pretty big teeth. Right, yeah. How does that happen? So a lot of sharks have sandpapery skin, and the Greenland shark is no exception to this. It's thought that this shark, or sorry, it's thought that this whale, Typhon, had been eating these sharks over the years, and that's why his teeth were so filed down. Because I guess he just liked Greenland sharks. Wow. And that's okay. really the only solid case of adults being eaten. I'm sure the juveniles are eaten by other fish when they're much younger. It's possible that orcas feed on these sharks as well. They've been known to feed on other sleeper sharks. But they mainly just eat the livers. So this sperm whale basically just went through like really diabolical orthodontia at the hands of Greenland sharks. I wonder if he like lost a kid or a wife to a Greenland shark. And that's just kind of embarrassing at that point. I mean, sperm whale is way bigger than the Greenland shark. Yeah. Like how, how badly did your kids suck at swimming? Couldn't (laughs) outrun a Greenland shark. Put it in reverse by accident. Put it in reverse. (laughs) Put it in reverse. Uh, so yeah, it's possible that orcas feed on these sharks as well. They've been found to feed on other sleeper sharks, but the Greenland shark specifically, I don't think we've found any like direct observations of that. But orcas do like to eat shark livers. But even then, if they ate on them all the time, they'd end up like Typhon with their teeth all worn down. Just nubs. Got it. Got it. Okay. And while the Greenland shark may not have a lot of predators, it does have one very famous parasite. Oh, here we go. 
This is where the awesome stuff happens. Greenland sharks are frequently infected with the parasitic copepod. I'm just going to call it the parasite. It doesn't even have a common name. And you're not saying it correctly unless you add a really long pause beforehand, which (laughs) indicates that you have no idea how to fucking pronounce it. (laughs) Well, I guarantee anyone this presented us, like in a research paper before, they had to do at least one pause. Oh yeah, they definitely they definitely go. I'm gonna... Shit, it's my paper. How do I not know this? I'm right, gonna... well, the, the thing is, it's always gonna come up with a little red squiggle, and then I have to think, dang, did I just make a typo? <laughs> and I have no point of reference, so we're just gonna call it the parasite. Well, even if you have a red squiggle, as long as you pronounce it correctly, it's really hard to carry that typo over into a podcast. <laughs> So, they're infected with a parasitic copepod, and copepods are a type of crustacean related to things like crabs and lobsters. Right, right. However, these guys are greatly reduced, and they more or less just resemble the little Mardi Gras boob tassels, or the dangly bit on a graduation cap. Okay. Just a little string. Aren't they also like some of the most, aren't they also like the most numerous zooplankton in... Pretty much everywhere, but especially in the Arctic, right? Copepods? Yeah. Uh, Copepods, maybe, but I wouldn't say these parasites specifically. Oh, no, no, not these ones, but copepods generally. Yeah, most copepods are not parasitic. They're actually just like a very important plankton. You can find them all over the world. Yeah, because side note, another topic that I considered was a really weird predator of copepods, but I decided to do something a little more festive in the end. I didn't. Yeah, you didn't. Yeah. You went with you went with Greenland sharks, which, given how awesome they are, should be more festive. But they got to get at least one cameo. They do, man. Come on, I really want to see one in Elf too. That'd be hilarious. It wouldn't make it wouldn't make it into the movie until the very end, like after yeah. the movie's already done. It's a post credit scene. Yeah, <laughs> like the Greenland shark just shows up at the end. Like, hey guys, when do we start filming? You know. So the parasites only get about an inch long and they actually grow out of the cornea of the Greenland sharks. Have you seen these before? I have, yes. Yeah. These are really cool. And that essentially renders the sharks blind. They lose most, if not all, of their vision. Okay. But this isn't a big deal, right? No, it's not. The sharks don't seem to care at all. Likely due to where they live most of the time, there's little or no light to begin with. They rely on all their other senses. Gotcha. Okay. So it's found that about 90% of Greenland sharks in the Arctic have these parasites, while the ones further south, like in Canada, don't. Only So that, so that one in the Gulf of Mexico just really didn't want eye parasites. I guess he really didn't. <laughs> he went all that way just to avoid them. He's like, fuck this. I want to be able to see the world, literally see the world. (laughs) So for a while, it was theorized that the parasites were actually symbiotes and that they would glow. And this attracts prey to the sharks. This has yet to be proven. I don't even know where it came from. Yeah, I think it's basically like, well, these sharks have these eye parasites. They really don't use their eyes at all. They have parasites there. It's got to do something. Okay. Uh, yeah, and imagine how hard it would be to observe this in the wild. 
Yeah, so I don't think this one ever will be proved. I think, all right, they got eye parasites. They don't care. Just let them sit there. It kind of reminds me of a dog my grandparents had for years. (laughs) Did he have eye parasites? No, 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 no. Let me explain. Let me explain. So they had this dog, and I will preface this by saying that this dog was amazingly sweet. One of the nicest dogs I have ever met. Good old cataracts. Absolute sweetheart. Um, but eventually they started noticing that like he didn't really see things as well. So they brought him into the vet and they were like, okay, well, you know, dogs get old. They kind of start to have eye problems. He might start to go blind and stuff like that. They brought him into the vet and the vet like takes a look at him, like kind of, you know, looks at his eyes, does that, like takes about five minutes to think about it. Looks over at my grandmother and just goes, yeah, your dog is blind can't see a damn thing <laughs> had the dog Nothing. been that way yeah the dog had been that way for at least for probably years actually oh no yeah well so here's the thing and this, and like my grandmother heard this and was like oh my god that's terrible but the vet explained to her that because dogs have such amazing other senses especially the sense their sense of smell they actually adapt pretty well to losing their eyesight much better than people do so like the dog would still like you know sense you entering a room like it would hear you like he would hear you enter a room and then could follow you based on your scent so his head was still following you around the room so you as a person were assuming that he was just watching you with his eyes but his eyes weren't doing anything for him he was just like using his nose Oh, and they just so, never noticed over the they years. Just never knew. Like eventually, they kind of caught on. They're like, "Well, his eyes look a little glassy, and like, you know, he, he he's like kind of runs into stuff a little bit. Like maybe he's probably just not seeing things as well." When really, it turned out that he just couldn't see anything, <laughs> and he was just using his other senses so well to adapt. So, and yeah, he lived for like another two or three years after that. Huh, that's pretty good. On the other hand, my sister would dog sit for a family friend and they had a dog that was blind and it would get lost in corners. Well, it would kind of walk in the one and you could hear it would bark a couple times and then you come into the room. It was a tiny dog. You just pick it up, turn it around and it was good again. It's right, like a well, Roomba getting stuck. <laughs> Except there's not a button you can press on your phone to turn it around. (laughs) Our Roomba, we had to get rid of a carpet that my mom really liked that she would keep in front of the sink because it was just like dark black and the Roomba thought it was in an abyss every time. (laughs) It thought it was like on the edge of some gaping hole that just opened up in the kitchen. It never adjusted to it either. So wait, would it? So it wouldn't. It just wouldn't like go anywhere near this carpet. No, it's just whenever it stumbled onto that carpet, it would start beeping for help. <laughs> what if it didn't think it was an abyss and just thought the carpet was really, really dirty? <laughs> and it was just like <laughs> criticizing her fashion sense. No, it was just calling in reinforcements. Oh, okay. <laughs> what? It's too dirty. I can't handle it. I can't do this alone. I'm calling in for backup. 
Anyway. Anyways. We're talking about sharks, right? Yeah, we were at one point. (laughs) So as we wrap this up, the last thing I want to go over is their relationships with humans over the years. All right. Let's hear it. Historically, they were caught and used for a variety of uses. Inuits would use their teeth to cut hair, and they made boots from their skin. And in later years, sailors would actually use their sharp skin as grips for the bottom of boots, and that helped them stay upright on slippery boats. Right. I imagine that wouldn't be popular nowadays. You would just tear up the boat. Yep, probably. And in later centuries, they would be harvested commercially, but only for their liver oils, which were very high in vitamin A, and they were good for lanterns. Got it. In okay. fact, when whalers would cut up whale carcasses for, you know, their blubber and oil, Greenland sharks would smell this and they come to the docks to feed on the scraps. And then the whalers would proceed to just catch the sharks, take out their livers and put them back in the water. Sometimes the sharks even survived this and swam off. Wait, what? It survived for a little bit, at least enough to swim away. OK, I guess. But, I mean, they died after they tried, like, going to a bar after that, right? Almost, yeah. <laughs> oh, just one drink won't hurt. <laughs> the drink hurt. Yeah, just, just a little bit. So, despite their liver's oil, the sharks were seen as a pest more so. Especially when the whale oil industry declined in popularity, you know, thanks to petroleum sources. The sharks were often blamed for reducing edible fish populations, and they were... In fair, this did happen. They were known to ruin fishing nets just by cutting up the nets and ruining them whenever they got tangled. Oh, like with their teeth or? With their skin. Their skin's really sharp. Oh, Real sandpapery. Got it. Okay. All sharks have this, but these guys, I think, really take it to an extreme. Why is their skin so much rougher? I don't know. Maybe, Hmm. I'm guessing it's an anti-predator adaptation. Because they move so slowly that things like, uh, in theory, whales should just be able to eat them, like killer whales, sperm whales, just in that one case. But that teeth can kind of dismay them. Right. I, I guess that explains the the uh, the nubbing of that one sperm whale. Yeah. Rest in peace, Typhon. So fishers would pull them in cut off their fins just to toss them back and they wouldn't even eat them, which raises the question, why toss back a giant potential source of meat that you already caught? It's already in your net. Why throw it back? Yeah, and also, actually, I have a thought right now. So, you know that Bond movie where there's that, like, there's that henchman who throws a hat that cuts off people's heads? That was in a James Bond movie? It was. It was a thing. Back in the 60s. It was one of the Sean Connery Bond movies. I haven't seen a single one, and that's not really tempting me to watch them. That's why it's a joke in the Austin Powers movie when there's that guy who throws a shoe. He's all like, who throws a shoe? Honestly. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's a thing. So for all those people who aren't Aaron and who know about, about Bond movies, what if that guy's hat was just like made out of Greenland shark skin? So it was really sharp, and that's why I could cut people's heads off. Okay, but that guy has to pick it up and put it back on. He had to do that normally. <laughs> like, that's just a bad hat design. I disagree because he killed a lot of people with it. I'm just saying, it worked out well for him. 
Why not just, you just have a throwing knife at that point. Like, the hat has to stick out. Like, it has to be a huge cowboy hat, right? Well, see, the hat floats. You know what I mean? It can travel a lot further. A throwing knife will just sink over time. The hat will, like, carry with the wind. You know? So the hat flies now? No, it doesn't fly. It's like a frisbee. You know? It's Have you seen a throwing a knife before? You could just get him a boomerang at that point, or just a big, you know, hatchet. You know what? I got a better idea. Give him a gun. Okay, but I'm gonna I'm gonna break down each of those individually. Let's start with the boomerang. Boomerangs would come back to hit him. No, you don't want traditional that. hunting boomerangs do not. Debunked. Okay. So, traditional hum- then let me say this, traditional hunting boomerangs look dumb as shit. The hat does not. The hatchet also looks dumb as shit. The hat does not. Unless he's dressed as, like, Johnny Appleseed, he's not walking around with a hatchet. At least not without raising all kinds of questions. He's just walking around with this giant-ass sombrero from hell, apparently. It's a top hat, excuse you. He's throwing a top hat? He is throwing a top hat. God, what a loser. <laughs> No, what a classy gentleman. Do you know what I keep in my top hat? A gun, and I think I'd beat him. Okay, and that's that brings me to your last point, which is the gun. And the gun is also a bad idea because he's going up against James Bond. James Bond is going to be so much better with a gun than he is, but James Bond wouldn't think to have a hat, so at least it catches him off guard, you know? Okay, so your logic is, man, this guy, this guy has a tank, and he is so much... B- no, I could use a tank, but instead, I know James Bond could be so much better with a tank, so I'm going to go at him with a pogo stick. That's the same logic you're applying. Not exactly, because you didn't imply that the pogo stick was deadly. (laughs) Okay, I'm implying the pogo stick is deadly. Then yes, because at least it's unexpected. (laughs) I'll give you that. It's unexpected. You can't underestimate the element of surprise, man. I'd be pretty surprised with a gunshot, personally. No, you wouldn't, though, because if you're going up against James Bond, he's probably, you're like, okay, how is he going to kill you? Well, literally in the intro to the movie, he shoots somebody, so he's probably going to shoot me. So, you know, he's probably pretty good at it. I got to try something else, you know. I'm not going to be as good at shooting people as James Bond is, so... The hat thing I would expect from, like, one of the Kingsman movies, and I think they could pull it off. But, like, an actual James Bond movie, that just seems... The other part about this, it's also unexpected, too, because, like, if you have a gun on you, what are you going to do with the gun? Shoot somebody? If you have a hat on, no one expects you to kill somebody with a hat. Until they see it happen one time and someone tells the story, hey, see that guy with the giant ass hat? The only guy wearing the hat? Well, see, if you're so good at killing people with a hat, no one's going to live to tell other people how you killed people with a hat. If you're so good at killing people with hats and you're somehow pulling it off so well, you might as well just use a gun because you're just good at killing people at that point. I don't think the hat's the determining factor in this. I disagree because it requires an entirely different motion to shoot a gun than it does to throw a frisbee and, I assume, to throw a hat. I'm just saying, it really catches people by surprise when he kills somebody with a hat. Yeah, I have to look it up after this now. (laughs) You should, and get back to me. (laughs) 
and please get back to me when we record the next episode because I really want people to know <laughs> your reaction to seeing that James Bond went up against a guy who killed people by throwing a hat at them. <laughs> Don't tell me he was like the main villain too. No, he was a henchman. Okay, thank God. He was a really cool henchman though because he was so badass he could kill people with a hat. We're moving on. (laughs) And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how I win arguments. (laughs) This went on for like eight minutes. Exactly. I don't know what the edited verse is going to be like. This went on for eight minutes. Oh, I'm editing none of that out. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) My arguments are a war of a... My arguments are a war of attrition. I just want to be done now. Anyways... (laughs) I'm going back to the question which I raised originally, which has nothing to do with hats. If you have just caught this huge shark, a giant potential sword of meat, it's already in your net. It's in your boat now. Why would you cut the fins and toss it back and not eat it? Yeah, why wouldn't you just turn them into a hat? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm asking you, Rustin. Why would you not eat it? Why would I? Um, I don't know. Maybe they taste bad? That's so- they're toxic. Oh, they are. Greenland sharks are toxic. Really? Yeah, for a very strange reason that links back to the reindeer, surprisingly. Wow, all right. What is it? So uh, let's rewind. Remember the migration episodes? And I talked about how eels have to alter their salt concentration for the ocean. Yeah. Like there's something called osmolarity. You have to maintain a balance. So if you put a freshwater fish in salt water, it's going to lose all of its water. Yeah. And vice versa, if you put a saltwater fish in freshwater, it's going to bloat up. Right. So fish need to maintain osmolarity. When a fish has a salt concentration lower than the water around them, they must constantly take in water and they have to excrete salt to maintain a balance. So, so wait. Okay, keep going. I think I know where you're going with this. So Greenland sharks actually do the opposite. They maintain a very high concentration of salt in their body, and they're actually excreting water. Right. So that's usually what freshwater fish do. They just let the water come into them, and they pee all the time, where saltwater fish are pumping out really concentrated salty pee. Whereas okay. freshwater fish have dilute pee is what usually happens. And reindeer know where all of that is. They can see it <laughs> they all. They can see everything. <laughs> That's how they know where the Greenland sharks are. <laughs> so Greenland sharks have a high concentration of salt in their body. And they constantly excrete water to maintain a balance. Thus, they aren't over or under hydrated. However, I, I literally just said they have salt in their body. They don't have salt in their body. They actually use urea instead of salt. Really? Okay. Which would act the same because it's a high concentration of a dissolved chemical compound, ionized too. So it would still work okay. the same as salt. Got it. Got it. Okay. And urea is the main ingredient of urine? Piss. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Full circle. And to present themselves from being poisoned by this, they use a protein known as TMAL. So, in fact, in Inuit folklore, Greenland sharks were created when an old lady washed her hair with piss. 
This was a treatment for head lice at the time. She just didn't have a weird thing for it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> sure. And she cut the hair off sure. and tossed it into the sea. And this became the first Greenland shark. What? Yeah, when you when you cut them up, they do smell like piss. <laughs> they reek of ammonia. Other folklore states that Greenland sharks live in Sedna, who is the goddess of the sea. They live in her urine pot because the sharks smell like pee that much. <laughs> so, so honestly, maybe the maybe the story about the Greenland sharks preying on reindeer has some merit because, you know, if they can see piss really well, it would also help them spot the Greenland sharks. So maybe that's why they evolved. Or part you have of the to stay away from them. It's the slow. I was going to say the silent killer. I guess it's the slow killer. They got to see them coming. Yeah. So, like I said, the urea in them works to maintain osmolarity in the ocean, but it has a dual purpose because it can also work as a sort of antifreeze. This is what helps them tolerate these sub-zero temperatures. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, another animal that does this is the wood frog, which I thought about doing, but I don't even know if they're in the Arctic circle itself, but they're pretty close. They're the most one of the most northern frog species, and they can be frozen and survive. Got it. I and one of the that. ways they do this is they have a lot of urea in their blood, and that helps prevent their cells from bursting, from being frozen. Got it. Got it. Yeah, so it works as an antifreeze. Unfortunately for people eating the sharks, the TMAO protein, which stabilizes the urine, will degrade into a toxic byproduct that can cause nervous damage, which is actually akin to the effects of alcohol poisoning. And it is enough to kill a person. Whoa. All right. That's why they aren't typically eaten. The meat has to undergo an extremely long fermentation process before it can even be fed to sled dogs. Feeding it prematurely will cause an ailment known as shark sick. Okay. So they're not even really fed to the dogs that often. Wow. Otherwise, the dogs will get shark sick. Yeah, which is actually which, nervous system damage. Which, uh, honestly, shark sick sounds like a Chinese bootleg version of Jaws. Shark sick, yeah. a mistranslation. Yeah, exactly. No, it's when you buy the uh, the pirated version and <laughs> you get the subtitles, but they don't quite get it right. Right, because they translated it between like using Google Translate to like go between like four different languages <laughs> and back into English. Yeah. So, however, in Iceland, Greenland shark is actually a traditional dish. Not in Greenland, strangely, just Iceland. And they process it by squeezing out the toxins from the meat and letting it ferment in the cold for two to four months. Traditionally, they would actually bury slabs of meat underneath like gravel and dirt as well. And it, when they're processing it, it looks like insulation foam. Like it's just big, pink and fluffy. And then when it's done, it gets like a brown crisping on the outside. And then they serve it in small bite-sized chunks known as Hakarl. So I know that Iceland actually is a really beautiful place and isn't at all like this, but how desolate does a place have to be where 
your where a main source of your food is an animal that is so toxic that you have to process it for two to four months before it's even edible. Okay, this is not a main source of food. The thing about local delicacies is they're local for a reason. That's what they got. Well, yeah, because everyone else from outside of Iceland looks at that pull process and goes, why the fuck do you do that? (laughs) So it doesn't spread to any other places. They're like, that's just, that sounds like way too much work. So why don't we eat literally anything else? The meat has an incredibly rich ammonia smell and fishy taste. Many people gag the first time trying it. Uh, oh, so so it smells like piss and tastes like rotting fish. Sign yeah, me up. Yeah. <laughs> it's been described as tasting like chewing a urine-soaked mattress and a jellied cube of pure ammonia. Why would you eat that? There's a, I went through the Wikipedia page on this. I also watched a video of how it was made, and it looks tasty. It looks tasty. Well, Dude, I, I don't think it is tasty. In fact, Gordon Ramsay actually spit it out the first time he tried it. Okay, but that's not saying much. He he'll he'll spit out food at a five star restaurant. Like that man is one of the pickiest eaters alive. Okay, well, he did it again for the Hakarl. <laughs> to make it a bit more palatable, it's served with a traditional Icelandic liquor, which I didn't get the name of. And I think when you do it like that, it kind of has a licorice taste added to it, but it still seems like a very niche food. Dude, I've I've heard about actual garbage that sounds more appealing than that. Yeah, today it's only made from Greenland sharks that are caught and killed accidentally as bycatch. No one actually fishes for them to make it. It's only made in a few locations. The number one being Bjarnehofen Shark Museum. Okay. All right. All right. So did people actually at one point hunt and kill Greenland sharks just so they could do this? I think the people that did it were very desperate. I mean, if you're living in Iceland, you're going to have tough times. Now it's like a very niche food. I mean, even when you buy it, you're buying a very small tub of a couple chunks of it. Because that's all you can physically eat before you start vomiting (laughs) uncontrollably? It's not a main meal. This is like, if you had Thanksgiving, this is something your weird cousin brought that everyone tries and kind of tosses. Okay, but if everyone already knows about your weird cousin, they're probably not even trying it to begin with. Oh, they're being nice. (laughs) They haven't gotten the memo yet. (laughs) I guess not. So, to sum things up, Greenland sharks are weird, but so incredibly fascinating. From their centuries lifespan, to their urine flesh lumps, to their parasitic eye tassels. There's still so much to learn about these fascinating creatures. And once again, you should all go to the St. Lawrence Shark Observatory website, read about all their research of the fascinating sharks of these waters. Absolutely. Would agree with all of that. And also, do not eat them. Don't eat them. Or at least I wouldn't recommend it. I will say the practice of eating them today seems somewhat sustainable. True. They only eat a... They only do, like, the bycatch. That have been caught accidentally. I guess. At what cost, man? Just I don't know. If you've already killed the shark by accident, you might as well do something with it so it's not wasted. Okay. I, I Like I said, I agree with that. 
I do agree with that. Like if like so much of bycatch is just thrown away and it's terrible. And I think I read it's only about 30 sharks a year. Okay. So it's really not much at all. And they still have way too much for the demand. Yeah, they still do. Next time you're in Iceland, give it a try. Or if you are a listener from Iceland and you've tried it, let us know. Honestly, yeah, I, I'm I'm fully prepared to eat my words about this because it, it could actually be delicious. I just don't know, but it, guys, it sounds terrible. <laughs> all right, and that's all I got. All right, well, that was awesome. I I'm so glad I learned much more about Greenland sharks. I knew about them initially when you brought them up, but I knew about the eye parasites a little bit. And I knew that they lived a long time and they were kind of like slow movers, but that's about it. Yeah, I had to dive pretty deep because all the sources I found initially were very surface level, like they're repeating the same things. Everything uh-huh. I read, the in-depth stuff came from this one research facility. Very nice. 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 Well, cool. Cool. All right. Well, should, you want to take us out then? Uh, No. We got to pick a topic. Oh, that's right. I always forget about this. You always forget. I always do. All right. right, Well, I'll tell you what. We did an episode about the Arctic. It's wintertime. Let's do an episode about the Antarctic. We're doing back to back. Yeah, it's wintertime. All right. You know what? Why the hell not? We'll double down. Antarctica. We're double dipping. Antarctica. Polar opposites. Literally. All right. So, if you want to hear that episode next time, uh, consider giving us a like, podcast app of choice, and subscribing. Uh, Aaron, if they want to contact us on social media, where can they do that? You can find us at Pot Podcast on Twitter, or you can email us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com. All right, sounds great. And until next time, I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. See ya. See ya. Join us next time on The Other Side of the Globe.